And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, the kids are just coming and coming and coming. And I'm thinking, God, we're not dying out after all. Isaac Asimov, an American writer most famous for his work, I, Robot, described the Great Depression of the 1930s like this, quote, no one can possibly have lived through the Great Depression without being scarred by it. No amount of experience since the Depression can convince someone who has lived through it that the world is safe economically. You get it. It was a rough time to be living in the United States. Now, imagine a growing community of Assyrians during a time like that in none other than Flint, Michigan. And yes, this is the same Flint that has been in the news the last few years for the water crisis. More on that on a future episode. Hi there, it's Rhoda. I'm excited to be back again with you for episode 24 of the Assyrian podcast. I had a chance to sit down with Alice Abraham and her friend Liz Bailey, who were born in the early 1930s and grew up in Flint and whose parents were an integral part of building the Assyrian community. And when I say sit down with them, I mean in true Assyrian fashion because Alice had kadid, chai, keke, mesta, dolma, and everything in between on the table as we spoke. She even sent me home with some goodies to eat later. We covered a whole lot of different topics, and I think you'll really enjoy listening to Alice and Liz talk about their experiences, including some regrets and lots of reflections. But first, if you're a first-time listener, we're so glad you're with us for this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you'll be notified of future episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we post updates, surveys, and that's where you also have the chance to connect with other listeners. Aside from being streamed on the podcast apps for Apple or Android, we're also streaming all of our episodes on Spotify, so there are multiple ways for you to find us and listen to past episodes and catch up and then stay caught up as future episodes come up. If you've been listening to us for a while, then I just want to thank you for being a part of our worldwide community of Assyrian podcast listeners. We hope you will continue to share our episodes and tell your friends and family about us. Lastly, a huge thank you to our sponsor, John Ashana from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home in Arizona or California, contact John Ashana Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519 on Facebook at John Oshana Realtor or at John.Oshana on Instagram. And now without further ado, here are Alice Abraham and Liz Bailey. My father came over in the 1920s and he settled in Chicago and as a lot of the Assyrian men did. And he worked there until they started hearing about the GM, all the Buick jobs that were going on here in Flint. So they all migrated here to Flint and started a community. My mother didn't get here till about 11 years after they were married, and it was around 1928. Uh, but in the meantime, the men used to get together, put their pennies and nickels together, because they, the first thing they wanted to do was build a church. And in 19, around 1926, 27, they started building the basement of the church. By 1933, they built the sanctuary upstairs, and the the community kept growing because they were all coming here for the jobs. 
my mother came, it took my mother 11 years to get here after my father, and we were like a second family. I think there might have been, what, about 50 families, 60 families that settled in this area. And it was very important for them. The first thing they did, as I said, was build a church. The second thing they did was build a, build a hall, buy a hall, a community center. And the third thing they did was an Assyrian cemetery. And they stuck together through the Depression. When they came here, they only had the clothes on their back. They didn't have Social Security or SSI or food stamps or anything. During the Depression, they did have soup lines, but very few Assyrians participated in that. They were very proud. I just kept growing. It's interesting to me that during a time like the Great Depression, when people were struggling to feed their families, one of the things that was on the minds of the Assyrian community here is, what can we do for our community? I think it shows how important a sense of community was to them. What is one of your first memories of that community? I can remember during the Depression, or shortly thereafter, there was a large Assyrian community that lived on the east side of Flint and a large on the north end of Flint. The ones on the east side, there was a park called Whaley Park. And I can remember that they used to put us in wagons or walk us or whatever, and the women would put whatever food they had, and they'd, and they'd bring their samovars and everything, and they would all congregate, and all the um, bachelors and, and the people that were not working and the families would all get together. They'd put their fa blankets down and, all, and whatever they would combine the food, and they, that's how they would spend their day. Like a potluck. Like a potluck. Uh-huh. And I always think now, as I've gotten older, I never thought to ask my mother, how did you afford food when there was, there was no unemployment? You know, they, how, did you, how did you guys do this? And remember back there, there was no refrigeration. They had ice, ice boxes. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know how they did it. And, and during that time, even during the Depression, they, they used to meet up above Pat's Drugstore on St. John and, and um, Leith Street. And they would, even then, they would be putting their change, whatever change they had, they put it in the pot, and that's how they were going to build that church. And a lot of them were not even members of the Church of the East, but it was very important to them. So. Other than the Assyrian Church of the East Parish, Marshalman Bar Sabaya, there was an Assyrian Presbyterian Church yes, down the street. Yes, and they talk to me about that. In the 1950s, there there was a large Presbyterian congregation here, but they were going to the Church of the East because there was nothing else. So uh, Melchizedek Bacchus was a minister, and he came to Flint and encouraged them to uh, build a church. And it's two blocks from the Church of the East, and that too was also built by hand as is the Church of the East. There was no outside labor. Everything was done by the Assyrian men and women, and as was the Assyrian Presbyterian Church. They were small churches, but they were very active. The women in both churches, uh, they used to cook, used to have suppers and picnics and whatever, and they supported each other. Uh, and whenever Marshman came, you know, they all they were right there with everybody else. I asked you earlier about Marisha Shimon because He's a figure in Assyrian history who's polarizing in some ways. What are your memories of him? Uh, I was always in awe of him. We thought the world of him. He also um, was a very highly thought of by the, by the Church of England, by the Episcopalians. He, had, he was 
no matter where he went, I mean, they just treated him well. I remember my mother was ill, and we, he, he had come here for his yearly visit, and there was a uh, church service with uh, a breakfast afterwards. And at that time, they had just changed the time um, for the, for the uh, winter, for the summer. And my mother wanted to go to have him say a prayer over her because she, they, that generation had so much faith and they believed. And she felt that if he would just say a prayer over her, that, that, that all would be well. And um, we got there a little late and it was impossible. So he blessed some bread and gave it to her. And it meant a lot to her. You know, they just, he, he was just, um, he never forgot Flint. And he always said that um, everybody here supported him. I remember my mother saying, always saying Jade, mm -hmm. because when he was young, Liz can probably tell you the story too, that uh, he was taken away and raised to be mm -hmm. the patriarch. patriarch. And he really had no childhood. And I think a lot of that was probably why he wasn't standoffish, but he, he was. So what eventually happened to you know, it, it's the 19, 1933, is, is that when the church was finished? Finished. Yeah. yeah. How long was the church active before people started leaving Flint? You can probably answer that. Well, I think as, um, as the families grew and the children grew up and got married, a lot of them intermarried, mm -hmm. non-Assyrians, mm -hmm. and um, they moved away. A lot of them, their jobs took them away, and a lot of them, they just, uh, they just lost it somehow. The church was not, um, uh, we lost a lot too because the church, I can remember the church used to have plays, yes. and you participated in that, mm -hmm. and they used to have Sunday schools. But all of a sudden, someplace along the line, they stopped catering to the young children. Mm -hmm. So when they intermarried, it isn't that their spouses didn't want to come, but there was nothing there for the children. Mm -hmm. So they went to wherever they could go to get a religious education for their children, mm -hmm. where they could participate. I remember the Greek church, a lot of them went to the Greek church because they used to have, remember uh, Judge Otis and all of them? Uh, they had basketball for the kids. They mm -hmm. had religious classes. Uh, but we didn't have that. And even today, uh, we've lost a lot of our members because the young kids there's nothing there for them. And uh, so we're slowly dying away. And right now you've gone down to mass, is it every other week? or Every other every Saturday. Other? Mm -hmm. And you don't have a local no, priest? No, gosh, Amir from Detroit yeah. is very, he is just a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. uh, he comes, he's very generous with his time. And uh, as long as he's willing to come and say mass for us, we'll try and stay open. How many people attend mass when he comes? Uh, between 15 and 20? Yeah. Yeah. 15 and 20 at the most, yeah. I think it's sad that people just, uh, we, we just, the, the um, Syrian Club of Flint just had a picnic. It's a scholarship picnic they have every year. And it's just sad that they, do, they don't realize that if they don't participate, rather it's the church or the club, that it falls apart. And, and like a family, if they don't start to keep their family reunions going or whatever, you, you drift apart. And, and I think that's what's happened with the Flint. And then a lot of our young kids have left because of the jobs. You know, Flint has just gone downhill. And that's part of our problem. We have so many of our, 
um, uh, friends who have children and grandchildren in Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. they aren't going to come back to Flint. There's nothing here for them. Last summer, you came to the church in Flint and you saw a bunch of young Assyrians oh, who had participated in the uh, youth conference uh, through the Church of the East. What was that like for you, seeing all those people? Rhoda, I cried for two days afterwards. I walked around in a daze. I, I, in fact, they had me give a speech, and I was so overcome by these young kids. And, I mean, these gorgeous-looking young kids, I have to say, that I, was, I almost couldn't think of anything to say. I thought, oh, my God, look at their Assyrians, you know. And I, it just was overwhelming. I... And the other thing, too, is I, I went to church in Detroit the after, and all of a sudden, they're given communion. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, the kids are just coming and coming and coming, and I'm thinking, God, we're not dying out after all, you know? Mm. But you kids were just amazing. I, and you all got along so well. <laughs> <laughs> we sure try. <laughs> but it was, I cried for two days afterwards. I think I... I don't think I stopped talking about it. Probably. No, when Alice told me, she said, you would not believe the sight at our church. She says, you really missed something. When was the last time you had seen that large of a group of Assyrians gathered in one place? We had gone for um, the Patriarch's uh, dinner yeah. in mm -hmm. Chicago, mm -hmm. and we were at the uh, Cathedral on Ashland. And, I don't know where they had these kids, but all of a sudden it's time for communion. And we stood up, and all of a sudden we were not going up for communion. And all of a sudden, these kids started coming up from kindergarten age and a little younger. And, and they kept coming. And Liz and I are looking at each other, and they're just walking by us. Walk, and we were stunned because that was my first experience. And I think yeah, maybe yours. Mine too. Yeah, that all of a sudden, all of these young kids, and, and then we went out to the lobby, and these young kids were sur had surrounded him, uh -huh. and they were serenading him. Yes. It was just breathtaking, I, you know, because we're not used to that. Yeah. We don't have young kids here. I can imagine that. You are in Flint in a little bubble. Does that sound accurate? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. With the Assyrians you've grown up with and the Assyrians that you know, and you hope that there's something outside of this. You hear stories, and then to see it, it sounds like it was something yeah. else. Amazing. Just amazing. And, and we had gone to uh, that same weekend, I think, is when we had gone over to Gosh's, to Jenny's. Yes. And this little kid sitting in the, he was sitting in a high chair or in a chair. I don't think he was maybe five, six years old. He's talking in Assyrian, and I can't even understand what he's saying. He's using these big words. And, yeah, we were just amazed. It was just, uh, it, it just was wonderful. Just, and now I used to speak, and Liz too, we used to speak perfect Assyrian. We've lost it. We've lost mm -hmm. it. I can still understand it. Mm -hmm. I but, can say it. I mean, I can speak it, yeah. but... Um, like when I was talking to Gasha Pira in uh, California, uh -huh. I said, Gasha, I'm sorry, I have to use some English. She says, it's all right, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think 
about it now. I never had to before. I used to switch back and forth very easily. Mm -hmm. But now I have to think of the words. I do too. And then now when I say them, they don't sound right because I don't use them that often. I said, did I say that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. There are a few things you associate with your culture. Language is one. Food is the other. You talked about the language part of it, um, the fact that you haven't used it. And so, of course, without practice, you lose it. What about the food? You just served me some delicious cadde. That's one thing we have not lost is good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we were constantly, we think of something that, you know, from way back when, and all of a sudden we're, changed, we're switching around with recipes. And then uh, a lot of the foods they came, came up with during the, the Depression, and you know, the lentil dishes. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother used to make a sweet sour uh, soup. Uh, and I thought it was, uh, you know, common among our people. But they used to take whatever they had and, and really make some wonderful dishes out of it. But I have to say, we still eat well. Yes. <laughs> we, we haven't forgotten the foods. The dolma. Oh, the yeah. yeah. All of it. Chodosh. Chodosh. What kind of chodosh? The, we make the meat. I make curry also. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but I, we usually eat the regular with yeah. the beans. I love the curry, but I don't know how to make it. I've had it, and one of the different Assyrian ladies have made uh -huh. it. Delicious, but I don't know how to do it. But a lot of them now, uh, because our parents never used curry, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, a lot of the dishes now that they make with curry, like you were talking about Jenny making, it's just, it's got the beans in it. That's something that we had to learn to, because it was not a dish that we were brought up on. Yeah. But uh, like Dalmatsilka mm -hmm. and the chipties yeah. and all of that, you know, we still we still have. Her sister used to make a delicious chipti. Yeah. Yeah. And you, both of your parents are from Iran, right? Yes. Iran. Yeah. yeah. Do you know where they were born? My dad was a Hasad and my mother was Benabalov. What about you, Liz? My father was from Mardalui. Have you ever heard of that? No. And my mother was from Techa. Oh, Techa Elishai. Yes. Um, did your parents ever go back at any point? No. no. When the Shah of Iran had his coronation, they chartered several planes. And we were going to send my mother. But my mother refused. She said this was her country. She mm. would not leave it. But you have to remember that my mother lost almost her entire family when they were fleeing, mm -hmm. and she refused to go back to their country. Mm -hmm. You know, she was not going to, there was nothing there for her other than bad memories, and um, she wouldn't go, but quite a few of the people from Flint did go, but they were astounded at how backwards some of those towns, they went back to their hometown, mm -hmm. and they couldn't believe how backwards everything was compared to Tehran. Mm. Yeah. Because they lived in Tehran, your parents, no. or did they live in the villages? They lived in the villages. Yeah. Oh yeah. My my mother's uh, dad, in in their town, the, the um, British wanted to open up a school, so he helped support that. And uh, so that's and and they were Presbyterian minis mini uh, missionaries. Mm -hmm. So that's how we happened to. In fact, they saved my mother. Uh, the Presbyterian missionaries, uh, they came to my dad and my grandfather and told him that they were going to kidnap my mother, that there was some, some sheik or whatever, uh, wanted, to, uh, wanted her as his wife. So they took her into the compound. Now, I guess back then they used to respect each other's churches and compounds. 
but two or three different times they had to take my mother and leave her with the missionaries so that they wouldn't kidnap her and take wow. her. Yeah, he wanted, he was determined, yeah. I can see why she wouldn't want to go back. Mm-mm. No good memories at all. No. In fact, when my they, when they were fleeing, it was during typhoon. They uh, and they all had my I think my mother and my brother and several had typhoid mm. from the rain season, and um, they thought my brother was dead. They got to a town and found out that he was still alive. So it's it, a lot of bad memories. Yeah. So. Did your mother talk to you a lot about those memories? Like, what was her... I know you said she had bad memories, but I wonder what it was like when she would relay those stories to you. You know, I, I really regret that I didn't ask a lot of questions. There, I have so many questions now mm. that I look back and I, I can't even imagine what they went through. And, and I can't imagine... Like, I, 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 my mother's youngest sister was saying that when they fled they had to come all the way down the mountain range then all the way back on the other side to go back up to Mosul. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's where they had set up refugee camps. Um, I just can't imagine that what these people went through. You know, I, and I, I want to know now, you know, in the refugee camps, you know, how were you fed and, and, and how did you and, and when you left there, you know, how long did it take to get here? And, and how many countries did you have to go through? And uh, so much of that, but they never talked about it that much. My parents were in the refugee camp in Baghdad for three years. They lived in tents at that time, and they spoke about just blankets on the ground. That's how they lived. And when they left there, they went to Marseille, France and then took the boat from there to come to this country. And they came through Ellis Island? Yes. yes. And they settled in Flint eventually? Uh, Flint first, then they moved to Connecticut, mm-hmm. and then came back to Flint. What brought them back to Flint? Uh, my father's family were all here. And you've both spent some time in my hometown of Turlock. Yes. <laughs> yes. What was it like when you would go visit from Flint to Turlock back then? Oh my gosh, it was it was really neat. Uh, um, it was a thriving community, like Flint, and uh, they were they were family orientated, like we were here. I I can remember that um, every Sunday didn't make any difference. You were in church. Um, they had their parties, they had their picnics, and everybody went. It's just, it's just, and a lot of them back then, or of course I'm going back a few years, were farmers, you know, they, they lived on farms, and, um, and I can remember every Sunday my Aunt Sophie go out in her garden, pick up flowers, and she'd decorate the church every Sunday with flowers. It was just, it was just, they loved their church, and they loved their people, and, yeah. Yeah, they were very close. But you know, they went through so much together that they just, they had a bond. It was just really great. What are your memories of Turlock, Liz? Well, when I was living in San Francisco in 1960, 61, and 62, 63, I would go to Turlock on the weekend, and it was just a little farming community. Mm-hmm. And when I go back now, I can't believe it. It's, it's just a big city. Yeah. 
You were talking about how you got lost in Turlock, oh right, my Alice? Gosh, I, I mean, it was embarrassing. <laughs> but it's still a very nice place. It's yeah, very nice. It is. It's, nice that's people. like going home now, you yeah. know, for the history. That, that's going home. Yeah. Yeah. Nice people. Yeah. Very friendly. If they know you're a Syrian, right away they I, I have to you. tell you the story. I'm going back to 19 in the 70s, maybe. My sister and I were in, we, everybody shopped in this department store. So we're waiting in line to check out. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing a Syrian. Now, in Flint, when we didn't want anybody to know what we were talking about, we could holler from one end of the store to the other in a Syrian. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew. All of a sudden, we're looking around, and there's all this. We, we found out very soon after that, that you did not speak Assyrian because you were surrounded by Assyrians. That's true. I can relate to that. (laughs) Having spent a lot of time in Turlock, I can relate. I know that uh, the Turlock Fairground camp, that used to be an internment camp, wasn't it? Do you have any memories of that? I don't remember that. Oh, uh, no, what do you remember uh, What I that? do remember about that was Stanislaus State Fair. Uh-huh. That, was the, that was the event of the year. Uh-huh. And everybody, if you wanted to see anybody, that's where you went. Uh-huh. And it was so much fun, you know. I think it just ended this past Sunday. Is it still as successful? <laughs> no. I mean, people do look forward to it. And I think that the Turlock, Assyrian American Civic Club of Turlock mm-hmm. has a booth has every a year. booth every year now, oh, yeah. yeah. So I think it just ended. Oh, wow. You missed it, Alice. I did. I <laughs> <laughs> You guys were talking to me about the Assyrian conventions back in the day. Oh, they, Tell us about those. Oh, they were so much fun. People came from Chicago, New York, uh, New Jersey, California. California, yes, and we just uh, really intermingled all the time. Nobody was a stranger. Had a lot of fun, a lot of good dancing, a lot of good food. And a lot of the couples met the, at those conventions. Yes, they you did. Know. And they married, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I was telling you earlier, too, the business end of it was taken very seriously at that time. If you were a delegate, you had to be at the meetings all the time. What does that mean to well, be every, a delegate? Every club that belongs to the national group mm-hmm. was allowed, I think, two or three delegates and then um, a delegate at large, something like that, so if someone could go. To, and so they were the ones that were did all the voting. And you had to go to the meetings, and you were they, they kept track. I mean, you just couldn't. Not just anybody could uh, vote. So the delegates all had their meetings. They, they had their election of officers and whatever. And, and they did a beautiful job. Um, and a lot of it, uh, I was telling you that um, at the East Coast, people were very well educated, very well connected. And uh, the Assyrians did very well back in that day. You were saying earlier about the rift. I find that so interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about that. In 1968, my mother had passed away. And we decided that we were going to go and visit just to get away. We, we went to Turlock to visit my aunt, my mother's sister. And it happened to be the convention was on. So my brother-in-law, who happens to be Hungarian, um, went up to the club and they were having a meeting. Well, the president of our group saw me and there was an important uh, vote coming up and he wanted to make sure that we were well represented. So he had someone from back in Flint send me my credentials 
also that I could vote. So we're sitting up at the tables, you know, uh, and, and the meeting's going on. And all of a sudden, uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many words, but there was a big, almost a riot. They, there was a group of, of, of newly arrivals that insisted that we had to speak in Assyrian. It was an Assyrian convention. We had no business speaking in English. And the reason that that was because a lot of the East Coast Assyrian men had married non-Assyrians. As, and we were just starting to intermarry at that time. But as I was telling you earlier, a lot of the women that married into our, our nationality could speak better Assyrian than I could. Well, anyway, th there was this big fight and a big riot, and they, they said that they, they were going to disrupt everything and so forth. I think that's one of the last conventions I went to, because after that, it just didn't seem like it was cohesive. It just didn't seem like there was always these rifts and they just didn't seem to accomplish anything. What do you think about that, about the insistence on speaking Assyrian? Because it strikes me that that is one way to continue to keep your culture alive. And while I understand the people who said, well, we've, we've married people who aren't Assyrian and we're more comfortable speaking in English, do you think that had that community insisted more on speaking Assyrian, it would have changed anything? I think I think a lot of it had to do with intermarriage, but also a lot of it was that we did not, a lot of the towns did not have um, where they taught Assyrian. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so much, I think, as intermarrying as it was that our, even in my generation, we could understand it. I mean, I spoke it. But most of, even mostly our the, the the boys or the men in our in our communities, could not speak Assyrian. Mm -hmm. So to get them to go to a convention mm -hmm. where it's strictly Assyrian, they weren't going to go mm -hmm. because they didn't couldn't speak it. They just didn't feel like a part of it. So um, I think it's admirable. I I think that so many of you not only speak Assyrian but you read and write it. And you will not find, even in Detroit, mm -hmm. uh, our generation, that any of us have ever were taught to read and write. Mm -hmm. I can say the alphabet, but to write, I can't write it anymore. But that, I think a lot of it was even just our generation just um, was not taught. Mm -hmm. And so we, we drifted away. And so when you married, you married someone who was, was not Assyrian. Right. How did you raise your children? Um, did you raise them with Assyrian traditions? Was that something that you thought about and consciously tried to do? What was that like? Well, I married a non-Assyrian, but I didn't have children. Okay. But I can speak for a lot of them that did intermarry. And their children know all the foods. They know, they, they always look for, used to look forward to the picnics, uh, weddings. Oh my gosh, we used to have wonderful time weddings here. So they, they but like I said, I, I think I don't know so much now in Detroit, as I said, because of the newer arrivals coming in. But back then, we did not concentrate on, on educating mm. ourselves in the language. I think that was the problem. You know, I don't think so much, because I, even like my husband, I mean, a lot of our foods are acquired taste, but he'll eat anything in Assyrian. I mean, he just, he thought it was great. And, and, and a lot of it, you know, they, all they did was eat bland food, and all of a sudden they're eating Assyrian food. And, Say, wow, this is great. I mean, anybody that can sit down and eat a piece of chaw the first time and say, oh, this is delicious, it astounds me. 
Well, I was just thinking about my parents. Um, they were fleeing the Muslims in the, world, the First World War. They were so happy to be in this country and so thankful. I mean, they would kiss the ground. And my, both my parents went to night school to learn English. And I think maybe some of that rubbed off on us because of it. I can remember, I, I, I did want to tell you, yeah, my dad could read and write English and speak English. And I'll tell you what, if you didn't vote, you got thrown out of the house. Well, there was yeah. no such thing you as ever not voting. They took it very seriously. They kept up on the news. They just mm -hmm. love this country. My mother said, this is my country. I'm not leaving it because of all that they had gone through. Exactly. Well, also, too, uh, foreign people were not acceptable. I can, re I can tell you stories of how I was discriminated against because I was a foreigner. I had black hair and black eyes. I was not accepted. When my parents moved into the Assyrians started moving into the, the area on the east side there by the church, I didn't know this till we were moving. The neighbors came over and pleaded with us not to move because the area was deteriorating. And they told me then that they had had a meeting, all the neighborhood had had a meeting, to try and figure out how to keep us out of there. Yeah, and I never knew that. I can remember my next door neighbor, Patsy. They had a screened in porch. I was allowed to go over and play with her, but she was never allowed to come to my house. And I found out years later that her father was honored by the city of Flint for working with disadvantaged children, and yet he never once said hello to me because I was a foreigner. And I never experienced that in Connecticut growing up. Mm. I grew up on a street where there were Irish, Italian, French, German people, and a couple of Assyrian families. So I never experienced anything like Alice is talking about. The other thing, too, is that like today, you have interpreters for every language. You didn't have that. You had to speak English. You didn't get a job. They kept you back in school. So therefore, I think a lot of us, and, and then when you go out in public and for the parents that couldn't speak English, they're speaking in a foreign language, we'd be so embarrassed because everybody's giving you this look. When my sister went to school, my, the oldest one in our family, she didn't know any English at all, not one word. Yeah, my sister. They, they, they held them back a half semester mm -hmm. and, and until they were able to speak enough English. And then later on, my sister went to summer school to catch up for that so she could graduate. I, when I moved in 1953, I told you I took my mother to California and ended up staying there. I went to apply for a job at the Bank of America in Turlock, and it was the new manager who had just come in. Um, and he was thrilled to death because he didn't think in the town of Turlock that he would be able to find someone with my experience. But out of courtesy, he said to me, could you come back tomorrow and, and the outgoing president to make sure everything. I walked in and he had to tell me that he could not hire me because he didn't know that Assyrians were, he could not hire an Assyrian. That he could only hire Swedes because that's what ran the town of Turlock. Mm -hmm. So I could not, yeah. Can you imagine today someone doing that? It was normal back then. I mean, I mean, they could. My bosses could tell me that they would give me a, a fair evaluation because they wanted the men to have the promotions. If they gave me a evaluation that I was entitled to, that would put me up for promotion. They didn't want a woman promoted. Back then, you swallowed it and you took what you could get. It isn't like today. I admire your ability to not have said a couple of choice words to any manager <laughs> who would say that to you. It was, um, it was a way of, you accepted it. 
you know, it was just so weird. I could had I could have had lawsuits for sexual discrimination, gender discrimination. I mean, it just. But you didn't think about that. You just put your head down. You worked, and I'm thankful for the job that I had. Yeah. I was able to retire. You know, I had a fairly good life. We were taught to respect authority. My dad said to me two things. The boss is always right and you are never late. They, they pounded that in us. And the other thing, we grew up, Nashimutani, Aiba. Good times. Because yes. <laughs> we didn't we hear. Did. Yeah. Oh, Nashimutani. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I can remember, and of course, you know, it was a village. I mean, they... My godmother, who happened, her husband happened to be the priest at the Church of the East, and I had stopped at the corner by the, by the, and I was talking to a classmate of mine who happened to be a guy. And I don't think I was even there five, ten minutes. By the time I got home, let me tell you, I was read the riot act. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. And my godmother, who had called my mother and said, "What is she doing standing on the corner talking to this man?" I believe yeah. we, we couldn't even wear lipstick. No, no, we're not. I remember, remember those rumbles, rumbus shirts that had the elastic. Yes. Well, my sister made the mistake of pulling elastic down. Yeah, that was the fashion. My father went through the roof. She had to go back in and change her blouse, or she wasn't allowed to go out of the house. Well, let me tell you, when I first put on slacks. <laughs> oh, I want to hear this. I came out, my dad was sitting on the porch, it was uh, springtime, and he looked at me and he said, Mu urzeptoya gata, gata urzeptoya. So you had to go change. Mm -hmm. We've come a long way. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel like I take those things for granted. I wear pants all the time. I oh, never well, even think about it. Well, we were brought up like the old country because yes. they came here and they brought those values and those traditions with them and that's how we were raised were you kids over there you know those that are left there you, you were progressing you were growing up at the times but our parents remembered it as it was yeah. and that's how we were brought up you speak about your parents wanting to become as american as they could be but also their home life was still the way they were brought up. Exactly. And so you were in this in-between situation where you're expected to speak English, you respect authority, you always, always vote, but you also can't do the things that your classmates are doing. Well, one of the things that, uh, when we were in the house, we were expected to speak Assyrian. But when we walked out that front door, we spoke English. I mean, yes. that was a given. Yes. Because we had to assimilate. There was no help there. There, you know, we we had to we had to learn. Otherwise, we we lost out. Did you speak to your siblings in English? No. Yes. Well, not oh, in the house. We spoke in the house. We spoke, we spoke Assyrian. Outside. Yeah. yeah. So it was the front door. Was that? Yes. Yeah. It's like you lived in two different worlds almost. Yeah. Yes, but we never thought of it that it way. Never did. That was just the way it was. We think about it now, we talk yes. about it now, but back then yeah. it just never occurred to us because yeah. we had to assimilate, we had to, to adjust. Here I was, 17 years old, coming home from school, wiping off my lipstick before I got home. 17 years old. You talked about the Assyrian cemetery. Is that still in existence? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Every Memorial Day we have, uh, Independence Day, we have... Uh, 
of service there. In fact, Asha Amir has been very kind about coming down now that we no longer have Asha here. And uh, it's very well attended. And just about everybody in that picture is buried in that cemetery. Wow. You go down and you walk mm -hmm. through and look at all these tombstones and it's memory lane. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just amazing. And so it is a plot of land that only Assyrians and only Assyrians are buried there, and their their families, yeah, I assume. Their families, their spouses, yeah. even though they're yeah, not Assyrian, sure. spouses are mm -hmm. allowed to be there. Yeah. yeah, they bought it, they fenced it in, and they put a monument there. It's, it's a beautiful cemetery. Yeah. What's the monument? It, tell, it tells it's, about when it started. Mm -hmm. And it's in dedication to all who have given their lives. Mm. Who were lost in the in the wars. Lost in the, yeah. in the war, or... Yeah. And every every Memorial Day, they they put a flag on each veteran that served in the service, oh. and um, it's just very nice. Yeah. So that's one of the legacies of the Assyrian community mm -hmm. in Flint. Yes. yes. What do you hope people remember most about the Assyrian community in Flint fifty years from now? Well, for me, they were good people. They were God-fearing people. They loved their, they loved their nationality. They loved their religion, and um, they were just basically good people. They were simple people, but um, they did their best. And they were always there for each other, mm -hmm. always. Yeah. If you could go back and tell your 30-year-old selves something about either what became of the Assyrian community or what it is the Assyrian community, both in Flint but at large, could do to continue to thrive and preserve who they are and move forward. What do you think they should have done? Like Looking back, what, do you, what are some of the things that you think were missed opportunities? Because I'm aware that years down the line, I'll be in your shoes. Um, people of my generation will be looking back and thinking about, well, remember when we used to speak Assyrian and, and now we don't. I was talking to my husband about that earlier today, thinking, you know, are, are we going to be, are we going to become um, your generation you, years down the line yes, thinking, you, you know, we did our best, we did our best and we wanted to preserve who we are, but here, here we are. So I, I'm asking, it's like a time machine. If you could do something differently, or is there an, a missed opportunity somewhere down the line? Well, for me, I think it's sad that the Assyrian people are their worst enemy, that we're, we're our own worst enemy. I think that people forget to put what's important first. The animosity over such silly things, people get their feelings hurt, Everybody wants to be a leader. Nobody wants to be a follower. And I think that has been one of the downfalls of the Assyrian nation from back one. I think if people would put their feelings aside, their own personal feelings aside, and come together and remember that we're all one, regardless of our religion, but we are all Assyrians. And if we forget that and we let little trivial things, I mean, you go to church, this one is mad because this one said something and they don't want, they don't like food. Well, you know what? Even in our little church, there's some of us that do everything. There's some that don't, but they sit and complain. 
people, I say, well, you know what? Come and help us. We're, we're willing to listen to what you have to say. And if it's a good idea, by God, we'll do it. But don't sit back and criticize those that are trying to do the right thing. And I think it's sad. I think even those of you coming in from Iraq and Iran are going to eventually end up like us. And I noticed too that even when you're together now, you don't speak Assyrian, you speak English. And that's what we used to do. So. Yeah, we always talk about when we have children, will they know how to speak Assyrian? And I don't know. I hope so, but I'm not sure. Well, it's up to the churches, really, if they keep, if they would just have Assyrian classes, if they would have someplace where they could go play or, or use a computer or whatever, just to keep them together. And that would be half the battle right there. But there's no, there's nothing really cohesive. There's nothing... And also together. your generation, if you have children, um, if you insist they speak Assyrian like our parents did in the home, and then when you're outside, English is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they may retain it. Yeah. It's just that we have gotten so much older now, I'm speaking for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, um, I'm right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, we have forgotten it. Mm-hmm. I just, I used to speak it fluently, and I'm having trouble finding words. Mm-hmm which I really feel bad about. But there's no one really to talk about. I was thinking the other day, there was something that came up, and I said, you know, there's nobody I can ask. There was something about, I don't think it was about food, it was was something else, even a word. Mm -hmm. There's nobody that I can ask, you know, how do you say this, or what was this, or, because we all, those of us that are left here, you know, have all forgotten our language. My friend Odessa, who is, a co-host of the podcast and she lives in Hamilton, Canada. She said that one of the reasons she started speaking Assyrian was because she realized that right now when she doesn't know how to say something, she calls her dad and her dad tells her how to say it. And she, I will never forget this because it just meant so much to me. She said, I realized at some point I won't be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I need to become the person that other people can come to and ask for those words. Yes. And so that's how she yes. started practicing and learning. So I, what you said resonates with me because I can see it happening mm-hmm. to people of my generation. Yes. I understand. And, and the, the best part of it is if they, if, if they were to continue, you know, because in this day and age, you can do it. In our day, we had to speak English because it, we, you know, like I said, I was so discriminated against. I mean, can you imagine how bad it would have been if I went start talking in Assyrian in school? You know, as bad as it was, um, I remember an a cappella choir at Central High School. I mean, it was an honor to be in that. And we got a new director, and he didn't like me being in there. I was a foreigner, and he didn't like it because I did not take formal vocal lessons. You know. I'm also thinking about the fact that in an, we were talking about this earlier, in an attempt to assimilate, we lost a piece of ourselves. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that we is did. sad, but as you're saying, it was about survival for you. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you spoke Assyrian, you were discriminated against. And so 
you figured, well, heck, I'll speak English so that you don't mistreat me. It was hard enough being a woman and someone who wasn't from this country originally, even though you were born here. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter. You know, your generation will end up like us because mm -hmm. it's already starting. It's already starting. I mean, you, you go to the conventions and everything, but your language is it's probably the hardest, hardest part of preserving our culture is is the language because we love the food. Everybody oh, loves, yeah, food. loves the food. Oh, yes. yeah. We love the dances. Yes, It's the language that's going to be the toughest part. And I, looking at you guys and talking to you, I also wonder how important it is. Is, it, is language everything? Is, does language encompass the entire culture? Or do you still continue to be Assyrian even if you don't speak Assyrian? Yes, I, I would say yes. Yeah. But, I, but I also feel sad because, mm -hmm. you know, when, when our parents came here, they spoke four and five different languages. Every country they went to, they, they picked up the language. They were just, and you know, here we are, we speak English. And that's it. You know, I think that's sad. I, I'd like to be able to speak different languages. Sure. And the fact that I can't speak my primary, you know, the Assyrian language is just not happy about it. Well, ladies, it's been so lovely speaking to both of you. I want to end by asking you to give our audience, who are mostly young Assyrians, what advice would you have for them about how to maintain who they are? And what would you say to them? If you could say something to our listeners, what would you say? Well, I think the first thing I would say is always be proud. Always remember who you are and where you came from. But also be a good citizen because the world is getting smaller. You can go out and do whatever you want in this country. No one will ever hold you back. You can go where you want, be what you want, but always remember where you came from. Never forget that. I like that. What about you, Liz? I would say about the same thing. Don't forget where you came from and don't forget your language. Because if you do, then you really feel bad about it. Yeah. You're so busy right now. You know, your kids are so busy with your schooling and with your work and, and just, you know, just put your head above water. But when you get older like us and all of a sudden you realize you lost something. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get it back. So. Thank you for the chai, the cadet. I'm going to try this dolma. Okay. Thank you for having me and thank you for talking to me today. Oh, it's been oh, wonderful. What a it's, been a, it's been an experience. Thank you. <laughs>